Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. Tonight we'll be in Philippians chapter 4. Just going to look at the first three verses. So Philippians chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and my crown, in this way stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. I urge Iodia and Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. Indeed, true companion, I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel, together with Clement also, and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. So as we continue our study in Philippians, returning, we're returning to a very familiar theme uh, in, in tonight's passage. And that theme is uh, joyfully standing united together in a Christian mindset that's a heavenly mindset against the ever-present threat of discord and division for the sake of the kingdom of God. So this is a call for holy unity against the threat of discord. And it's first found in um, chapter 1, verses 27 and 28, where Paul writes, Only conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. So there's the heavenly mindset. So that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. And there's the call for unity for the sake of the gospel. In no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. And there's a mention of, of one of the opposing threats. So the same theme is brought up in the second chapter, where Paul explains the key to unity is humility, and the key to humility is Christ. Uh, in chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, the Spirit says, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, Regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourself, yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. So then Paul goes on and uh, gives this beautiful meditation on the incarnation and the death and exaltation of Christ. From which he says then, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So again, we have a call to a selfless unity through a heavenly attitude, which is perfectly demonstrated in Christ. That's why he's calling them to look at Jesus for the purpose of obedience. That's the working out of salvation or sanctification. Um, so the work of sanctification always starts individually with you. Uh, and then it moves corporately in the church and then finally spreads out into the whole of society. In other words, this holy unity is for the spreading of the kingdom of God, right? The kingdom of God's going out of the church into the world. But every kingdom has opponents. And every opponent knows the easiest way to defeat a force is to divide them, right? A house can't stand if it's divided. Uh, so there's strength in numbers, and, and especially when those numbers are un- united in a single purpose. Therefore, it's a good strategy to lessen the numbers by dividing them. And that is the common strategy of the devil. It's always to divide. This, of course, was an issue for the Philippians. And I uh, spent a lot of time looking at that the last couple of weeks. Uh, they were, in a spiritual sense, under attack by a group of men called the Judaizers, or often called the Judaizers. Uh, these false teachers brought division 
with a teaching which in effect called the Christians to trust in their worldly attainments, right? their own righteousness, uh, the family they came from, the culture they subscribed to. Uh, called them to trust in that and thereby diminish the all-encompassing importance of Jesus Christ. This uh, sort of teaching always leads to a mindset that's earthly. Always does. That's why in uh, 3.18, Paul says, For many walk, of whom I often told you, and now tell you, even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, whose glory is in their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. Right, so these, these opponents are earthly-minded people. Those that set their mind on earthly things will always be filled with selfish ambitions. Always. That's, those things are synonymous. Right? Selfish ambition is always earthly-mindedness. Thinking about yourself before others. Uh, they will never be able to maintain unity. As it requires selfless humility. Moreover, they will never actually be about the kingdom of God. Right? They may talk a good game, but ultimately they're about building their own kingdom. Which is why Paul ends chapter 3 by reminding the Philippians that their citizenship is in heaven. And all things are in subjection to our King Jesus. They're to be about the kingdom of God. Not about these earthly things that these false teachers are about. Again, remember, the problem with false teaching is not just that it's not true, but it's bad. Now, that may seem redundant, but truth is not just true, it's also good. Right? False teaching is destructive. It breaks down relationships. It causes instability. It leads people away from God and brings all sorts of uh, fleshly components with it. So he's against it because it's going to destroy their unity and remove them from having a focus on the kingdom of God. He wants them to be about uh, the work that Christ has called them to. With that in mind, he starts chapter 4, uh, and Paul says, therefore. So what, what is about to follow is a consequence of what has preceded. And this is one thing that, um, this isn't in my notes, but uh, I was thinking about this, that uh, when I was a kid, I was always into weird, like, mysteries and unsolved things. I was just curious about, like, who made the pyramids and Stonehenge and all that sort of stuff. So I used to get those books from the library. And then in the mid-90s, we got, we finally got cable, and that's when, like, the History Channel and Discovery Channel were always trying to tell everyone that aliens made everything, you know. Uh, and every once in a while, I'd catch a Bible special on there. I wasn't a Christian yet. And they'd always talk about the Bible, how it was this really hard-to-understand coded book. Right? And always trying to unlock the mysteries of the Bible. Um, which makes sense for an unregenerate person to say. Right? Their mind is darkened. Uh, but when I became a Christian, and the first book I read, well, I read Revelation. And I was like, I don't know what's going on. Um, so, and I read... Uh, I read Matthew, and what blew my mind about reading Matthew is how it just made sense, right? It was, I could understand it, that there was a logic to it, and, and the story built, and there, things seemed to be organized in a way for me to connect the dots, and that's one of the lovely things about Scripture, is uh, Scripture isn't a collection of fortune cookies. This is why I always rail against uh, chapters and verses. They're good for reference and not for anything else. Right, um, because they divide up thoughts that aren't divided by the author, and we just use them to know our place. That's all. 
but there is a logic that goes through Scripture, and that's why we have to uh, sit down and actually read chapters. Never, ever read a single verse, ever, right? Read a, read a paragraph, read a page. You'll make sense of it. And so throughout the whole book of Philippians, he's always saying, so then, or therefore, trying to connect thoughts. And he does that uh, right here. Uh, namely, Paul is, is calling them again. Uh, it's a consistent call to joyfully standing united together in a Christ-like heavenly mindset against the ever-present threat of discord and division for the sake of the kingdom of God. That's what he's calling. That's what this book's about. I think people reduce this book down to joy, right? It's a book about joy. And so every sermon's got to, like, have joy as a punchline. It's got to have joy in its title. There's pastors struggle over coming up with witty uh, titles for their sermon. And it's always got to be joy uh, with Philippians. But there's more going on here than that, right? There's some major themes that are threaded together, which is joyful service um, on behalf of others to the glory of God to see his kingdom spread. That's, what, that's what's being worked out here. Um, So really, chapter 4, is since it's connecting it, it's, it's more the same. It's, uh, but in this time, we've got to consider the source of the threatening discord, the thing that's threatening getting them off task and bringing disunity. Uh, it isn't a group of ungodly false teachers peddling the equally ungodly false teaching. Not at all. It's a, it's a very different source, but just as threatening. Look at verse 3. Right? What does verse 3 say? I urge Iodia and Syneche to live in harmony in the Lord. So the problem is a dispute between two women in the church. And these women weren't false teachers at all. Right? Quite the opposite. They were uh, women with a solid track record. If you look down at verse, um, at verse 3, uh, he says, I ask you to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel together with all my other fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. So these women, these women have struggled for the gospel. They are committed laborers to the gospel. And Paul, when he looks at him, he doesn't doubt their salvation. Right? There's times where he does doubt whether people are right with God or not. But not here. He says their name is in the book of life. So these women aren't, uh, aren't just brash, loudmouthed, troublemakers that came in off the street. These are church members that have been around for a while and it contributed, and Paul loves them and respects them. Uh, that's what he's emphasizing here. And yet, uh, they are still uh, dangerous. Right? These are sisters in the Lord, and they have demonstrated good Christian character in the past, but now are at odds with one another. There's a threat of disunity between even the most seasoned Christians. Since you don't outgrow the, uh, the possibility of any sin. You do develop maturity and strength to fight against certain things. But these things are always a risk. And they're especially a risk for people who think they're not a risk. Right? If, you're, um, if, you're, if you're prepared for someone to break into your house, it means your doors are locked. You know? So it's going to be harder for someone to break into your house. Uh, but if you think, ah, it never would happen well, then you're always at risk, or you're at least at more risk. Uh, so even the most mature Christians can find, them in a pla- uh, find themselves in a place where they're uh, bogged down with sin and, and actually presenting a, a threat to a, a church. So it never goes away. Your, your relationships are like gardens. 
that need constant attention. You know, uh, I had, uh, we had these beds that I had cleaned. I'd removed all the weeds out of them. They're the worst weeds, too. They, they're, they're not so prickly that I can't get them with my hand. Like, I can grab them and pull them out. But they're prickly enough that my hand might itch. I just don't like gloves. So I'm always tempted just to pull them out. But, yeah, I pull them out, and then uh, it rains for 100 days in the south, and you can't get to it. And, uh, and then before you know it, there's all those weeds out there, you know. And they can overwhelm and, and choke out the good plants. And our relationships are like that in every church. Uh, weeds spring up, and they can, they can overwhelm uh, a relationship that can sour something. That's what's happening here. So Paul urges them to live in harmony. So the relationship is disharmonious. Uh, they're not united at all. Quite the opposite of what Paul's been calling these Christians to. Uh, so just consider a few of the uh, antonyms for harmony. Discord, dislike, disunity, clash, fighting, incompatibility. Right? That's, that's what's going on here. They're not, they don't work together well. You know, I just, this is a little throwaway comment. But it seems like people always leave relationships and churches because they say we're incompatible, right? And yet Paul tells them to work through it. <laughs> so you can work through your incompatibility if you're a Christian. Uh, God brings people from all parts of life. Like if slave owners and slaves can go to church together, you as an American, you can, you can work it out probably. Um, and we don't know what the dispute was over. It could have been theological, but in my experience, few church disputes are theological in an immediate sense, right? Uh, that's not what's often going on, even though they might say. People often get upset uh, about something non-theological. They feel that they're not being used enough. Especially, uh, no one ever says, you know what, I don't feel like you're using me enough in the nursery. I long for the day where a woman complains to me, I feel like I don't, get to, I don't get to help people with their children enough, right? I like to change more diapers. I like to give more mothers a moment. I just, you guys won't let me do it. But no, everyone wants to teach. It's what everyone wants to teach. When I was preaching the sermons, I was longing for Andrew to get back so I didn't have to bear the weight of the sermons anymore. Not in prep, just the immense conviction. So people that long to teach kind of blow my mind. Uh, I don't have it in me to do it every week. Uh, but everyone wants to teach. They don't feel like they're being used enough. Um, they feel like they've been passed over for an office. That'll come up. They think that they're unappreciated. Right? Maybe they are, but um, maybe they're not. They're offended that they weren't invited to something. That's always a hard thing in a church. Like, we, we'll get there someday. When a church gets to about 100 people, like, you can't invite every woman over to your baby shower. You understand that? Right? We can't turn every baby shower into a church event. We can do it right now because, you know, here we are. But there is a point where those things start getting kind of weird. And in my former church, which was quite large, if, if my wife was to go to every baby shower and every wedding shower, I don't know that I'd ever see her again. Uh, it was just constant weddings and showers. And so someone's not invited and they feel like that it's a personal jab or something like that. Uh, they think that a sermon illustration is about them. I hear that all the time. You know, and then you find out someone's struggling with a sin you didn't even know. I wasn't talking about you. But now I know what's going on. <laughs> so um, my favorite saying, if you throw a rock into a, uh, 
uh, herd of dogs, the one that yipes, is the one that got hit. Um, They're mad that there is or there isn't a new building campaign or that there is or there isn't a a youth group. They don't like the style of music. You know, they think the sermons are way too short, that they should at least be 70 minutes. Um, They don't like the lengths of sermons. They're too long. Some people don't like the interior uh, decor. It's not reverent enough. It's too irreverent. Whatever. They get offended by something like that or a series of things like that, and then they look for something more theological sounding as a way to voice their displeasure. Anyone's been around knows this is true. I don't have anyone in mind tonight in this congregation. So if you think I'm talking about you, that's on you, right? I have people in my mind. It just happens to be that it's not you guys. Um, but they always look for something theological. And then you think, man, why are they so upset about this small thing? Well, because that's just their way to say I'm not happy with the church. And if you dig and ask the right questions, you can get underneath to what's going on a lot of times. Um, Where did I put that? Well, whatever the actual dispute is in in this particular uh, issue with these two women, it's left out and not by accident. There's a sense where the surface level of dispute isn't really important. And married married people know that to some degree, right? Like, um, you know, if you didn't communicate when you're going to come home, it's it's that you didn't care enough, right, to communicate and and make that clear to your spouse when you're going to be somewhere. Like, how, the means of communication or the exact time, that's not the biggest issue, but it's the attitude underneath of it that you're really fighting about. That's why, especially early on in marriage, all your arguments end up being about how you communicate, right? Like, you, you get so mad or you get so uh, hysterical that you actually forget what the argument was about because it went from one thing to another thing to another thing, and then eventually it's all about communication, which demonstrates that the real issue is about uh, your attitudes towards someone or a perceived attitude. The cause of disunity is always the issue of mindset. And that's why Paul repeatedly brings up attitude and mindset as he seeks to stir them up to holy, joyful unity in this book. Over and over again, he has have this mindset, have this attitude. He says that over and over again. He's, he's concerned about how people think about things, about what's going on in there. And the cause of many disputes and divisions is usually pride or the flip side of pride, insecurity, right? That's what, what's usually going on. And this is what sometimes is called looking for the sin under the sin. That the surface level sin is a manifestation of this deeper sin. Now, people can go crazy with that. It's like the movie Inception. If you ever saw that movie, they go into a dream and they're able to go into that guy's dream in the dream. It's just like dreams all the way down. And uh, so they start to look for the sin, under the sin, under the sin, under the sin, under the sin, um, that there's always some deeper level. Uh, but that's not what we want to do. Just recognize that surface lo- the dispute at the surface level often isn't the, the real issue. It's just the particular, uh, how that it's manifesting the attitude. Uh, regardless, to address disputes, uh, we must always go down a level before the surface to the issue of attitude. And disputes must be addressed. Paul is concerned enough to address the problem by publicly naming the women and urging them to work it out. That's a big deal. There's times where he deals with, um, I mean, even think of the Judaizers. He doesn't name them. 
these other guys that he's re- referring to in the previous chapter. Um, I mean, it's a big deal. He wants to address it. He's concerned about it. And he's urging them to work out. Now, why is he concerned? And the reason he's concerned is 1 Corinthians 5. Uh, there, uh, Paul is talking about, he's referring to a man that has an unlawful marriage, probably to his stepmother, uh, which is disgusting. And he writes, I've decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. And he says, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? In other words, they're to remove this man from the church. That's what they're talking about. This is excommunication. Deliver him outside of the church. Get him away. And, um, and the reason the reason is simple. It's because sin is like yeast. It spreads. Sin leads to more sins. It's cancerous and it's contagious. If you don't deal with these uh, disputing women, it's going to spread to the entire church and cause disunity. Just like a little bit of yeast spreads to the whole thing. It must be resolved, the problem. The Philippians can't look the other way. Little things always lead to big things. There's always pressure, always pressure to downplay disputes like this, problems like this. We have to deal with it. Two women gossiping and fighting can destroy an entire church. It can, it can pull a whole church down. Right? Clearly, it's a threat. So Paul deals with this theological threat in, in the third chapter. But now he's dealing with a very practical threat, which are women warring. Right? And he doesn't want that to destroy the Philippian church. It's a threat to their unity. Your sin is a threat to this church. Right? That should motivate you to sin less. Right? Engaging in whatever sin you're engaging in will affect the whole. No one's sin is unto himself. Right? Think about that. It's not, you're never by yourself in that sense. It always ends up affecting people. If you're, if you're loose in your sexual purity, when someone confesses sin to you, uh, you're, you're going to be less useful in calling them to repentance or being bold in the pulpit. If, um, if you've got a bad conscience on how you're doing your taxes or running your business or stealing from people, Right. You're not going to you're not going to exhort a brother when you see him doing something that's kind of similar. But down the road, it's just it weakens the whole church. And it spreads. And then women, when they're fighting and sometimes women fight. Right. Every once in a while they fight. I mean, I don't know why Scripture is always connecting gossip to women. I don't know why it does that. I mean, that is totally sexist. I mean, it's offensive. I mean, it's absolutely true. Um, and it's, without a doubt, a feminine sin. And that's why the Holy Spirit says what's evidently true. But, you know, one thing I've always found, I mean, guys, guys will tear things down, too. They definitely will. But um, we are trying to make up for misogyny. So we act like women have, like, less capacity to sin. But they will destroy a church. They'll say, did you hear what so-and-so said? And it spreads through the whole church. People are calling people, emailing stuff, up in everyone's business, being busybodies. You know, telling half-truths. Trying to create parties inside the church. That's very dangerous. It'll destroy an entire church. And that's why 
when you see the hints of it, you have to take notice. It's on you. By the way, you should solve this before it gets to the elders a lot of times. That's what church, the church discipline starts with the congregation. Where when you see someone having a bad attitude or saying something ungodly, a simple like exhortation from scripture. Oh, brother, God's good. He'll get you through this. Nah, don't, don't complain. Let me pray with you. Right? That could stop something really big right away. Right? That's pulling that small weed. That could grow into something that would choke out everything. It starts with you guys. That's, uh, it's the pulpit ministry. It's the body life. And then when things get real bad, it moves to more formalized stuff. But it, it doesn't have to get there. So people are always pressuring. People don't want to see what's in front of them. I don't want to see what's in front of me. I don't want to see sin. I don't. Because it obligates me to do something about it. To say something, to pray about it, to confront it. And I simply don't want to. I don't want to because I don't love those people, because I'm busy, because I'm tired, because I want to go home, because I don't want them to not like me. I had enough arguments this week. I don't want to have one more, right? That's how I feel. Maybe you don't feel that way. Maybe you're better than me. You really, I'm not saying that sarcastically. I mean that. Um, but the word of God constrains, right? It compels me to do this because this is what God calls me, and this is what we should be doing as a body. That's why he, ha- he involves this third party, right? He says um, in verse 3, indeed, true companion, right? If you're with me, true companion, if you're on this journey with me, I ask you also to help these women. Help these women. You're helping them. So what does not helping them look like? Doing nothing. That's what not help. Being quiet. Saying nothing. Right? That's what not being helpful looks like in this case. Being helpful means trying to resolve it biblically. And look, th- that takes different shapes with all sorts of, uh, of disputes. There's not like a one-size-fits-all. Fit, Who knows? But uh, God, he, he involves a third party. Um, and uh, really, I, think, I don't think he's speaking to one particular person, but just saying if you're a true companion, this is how you'll help these women. And help them work it out. Because it will spread. We don't want to deal with conflict. Ever. People hate dealing with it. And uh, this is what we always see. uh, When people leave a church. Rarely do they have like a series of meetings. We're like here's the issues I have. Let's work this out. A couple emails back and forth, some concern call. I mean, that's, that's not what usually happens. What, what happens now, more often than not, is a text message, maybe, right? You know, God, the Holy Spirit's calling me somewhere else, you know. No, he's not. That's not the Holy Spirit. That's you. That's you. Let's talk about it and see if it's right for you to go. But the Holy Spirit didn't tell you anything. Um, but, uh, or then they'll, um, if they don't text you, a lot of times it'll be this one, one big meeting. Right. Like, I don't know if you guys are like this when someone uh, asks you to go out for a coffee that's never asked you to go out for a coffee. I'm always like, OK. All right. What did I do? <laughs> what am I going to maybe apologize for today? Um, but a lot of times someone wanted me with church leaders or something and uh, and they'll they'll have, you know, written out on paper 
everything that's wrong with the church. And, uh, and they'll tell you. And I can think of one case where someone did that. And then they asked, is there any way I sinned against the church? Which was triggering for me. I was like, yes, this, this meeting is a sin. This meeting is a sin. It is a sin to just leave a church without trying to work through conflict. It is, it is wrong. If you do it, you're wrong. Just on one meeting. If the church is heretical, there's all sorts of like crazy things being said from the pulpit. You do not have freedom. You don't. That's what this is saying here. Work this stuff out. Now, you do have freedom to leave a church by all means. And sometimes it'll be theological difference, and sometimes you're just, you work through everything, and you can't get past the, these things for whatever reason. And uh, still a Christian, we're still Christians, hopefully, and people go different ways. But I remember, if, if someone's going to, like, give me a list of everything that's wrong with our church, and it, even though you kind of feel it, but it's coming out of nowhere, and they say, have I sinned? Yeah. Yeah, man. That's, you want to work through these things. I mean, that's what we do with our employers. Our employers, like, before they just fire us, they, they warn us. And before we leave, we try to work things out, usually. If you're mature, you do. Um, you know, we don't kick our kids out of the house right away. Right? There's, there's series of discipline, and there should be, that, come, that lead up to that, perhaps. But um, people are always bolting in some one big dramatic meeting. Usually they'll say, you're just so intimidating. So, something like that. But Christians stood in the face of lions, right? You can honor God in this way. And so we have to be committed. So the way you keep from ever getting there is just you work, you work these things out through the gospel. There's two ways you do it um, that I see in this passage I want to address briefly. Uh, first is you focus on what's primary. Uh, churches that are built around secondary affinities always fall apart. And what you have to notice about these women is that they got the main thing right. They labor in the gospel. Right? They, they, that's the biggest thing to get. And they have that. And we should always be able to say, but the gospel, brother, sister, right? Jesus is king. Let's work through it because of God's glory, the name of God. Let's figure this out. God's glory is we don't want the we don't want the pagans to be able to point at the church and and uh, drag the name of God down the mud. Let's let's work this out. The gospel. You believe the gospel. Right. These women. These women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel together with Clement, also with the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Oh, yeah, we differ here and there, but here. And the main thing, the thing that's clear from Scripture, that one thing, the Lord Jesus Christ, right? Who lived the perfect life, that died the death we should have died, that that's get, sent the Holy Spirit to us, right? Through him we have power over sin. That, that calls us to unity. That starts to break down these divisions. Churches that are formed on secondary, and I, as someone that was church planning, when church planning was super cool, like, every church was looking for, um, you know, are you a church that drinks, drinks beer? Who cares, right? But that was, like, a big thing for a while um, when craft beers were, I guess they kind of are still big. But, like, it was pretty fresh then, right? And everyone would do theology on tap. Like, every church had a theology on tap 
ministry, it was everywhere. It was like a big thing for Baptists, right? Like, we were drinking in public now. Um, but, uh, but there, I, you know, I've told you guys before that people thought the little church plan I was involved in was the home birth church because all of us were having home birth. And I was like, we have no position on home birth at all, right? Uh, none. And uh, so... I, Churches that are formed around your position on vaccines, your position on, on diet, your position on, uh, oh, I don't know, 10-year mortgage versus 30-year, Dave Ramsey. Um, I, there's just, these are the things that people are looking for in a church. Right? These secondary things, so obnoxious. It is enraging to me. Not that they care about those things. I care about those things. I do. I have positions on most of those things, very much. Read books on it. Think about it a lot. But is that what the confessions and catechisms, is that what Christians through generations, is that really what Scripture talks about? Can't we see that those things, if we, if we make doctrine concentric circles with a bullseye, can't we say those are a few rings out there? I mean, we should be able to say that. So if you're looking for a church for these outer rings, you're missing the target, right? right you want to focus towards the middle. And that's what we got to call people. Like, hey, I know you don't like youth groups. Or I, I know you don't like this or that. But look, look how we're doing this and work through it. The other thing is, you call them to focus on the family. But not in the James Dobson way. Um, Paul says in verse 1, Therefore, my beloved brethren, my beloved brethren, your family, right? The waters of baptism, metaphorically speaking, is thicker than blood. There are family members that you will not see in heaven. Right? Biological family members that will not be with you for eternity. Many of us, that just weighs on us, right? I know, I know a lot of people have family members that you're not confident of that. I know I have a few. And... Uh, but there's Christians. Oh, I'll be with you guys for eternity. If Jesus is your Lord, if God the Father is your Father, we are family. Right? Family sticks together. Like, I feel like part of what we have to do is break down this new view of family where somehow family trumps the church. Like how can family trump the church? Right, if you tell me your position you have on family, it's going to come from Scripture, which means Scripture is your authority. And if Scripture is your authority, do you believe what it says about the church and about the, the proper ordering of these things? Not that family doesn't matter. But I want my kids to be part of the church more than anything. Right? Like, I like the idea that fosters aren't a bunch of drug addicts anymore. You know, and they're not going to be a bunch of high school dropouts. That's cool. I like that. I like to have a heritage of heaven instead of a heritage of hell. But if my kids, if my kids have lots of money and a 750 credit score, right, and degrees and are clean, but go to hell, why do I care? And why do you care? Who cares? Oh, one of the beauties of being a Christian is that when my home was messed up, it was broken, it was dysfunctional, I was brought into a family. I had so many brothers, so many sisters, so many mothers, so many fathers. So I worked things out. I mean, think of, the, think of your family members. 
Think of your crazy cousins, uncles, or brothers, in my case. You do insane things. My one brother, he'll let me tell you this story, came home from OzFest in the middle of the night and says, hey, they invited me to be a roadie on OzFest. I'm going to go. Oh, like, like, like when? Uh, tonight. Really? I don't think that you probably should do that. Well, you never support anything that I do. Well, who are you going with? Oh, these guys I met. And when does this end? Well, it ends like seven months from now in San Bernardino. They're going to drive me back. The guys you met tonight are going to drive you back six months from now. That's not going to happen. Um, and, you know, he leaves, and then we don't hear from him for months. And then when he comes back, he was living behind this trash can because the drug deal didn't go right. And he called mom and dad, and they bring him back on a Greyhound. And the first thing he does in 30 minutes is steal the car. He steals the car to go get cigarettes. Like you've been gone for a year. And my mom and dad put up with it. Now, why did he put up? Why would they put up with it? What's the answer? Just someone say it out loud. He's your son. I mean, think of the stuff we put up with for family. But you will leave a church over the slightest problem. But you'll put up with insanity from blood family. We all do it. Well, we just flip that a little bit. Fix it. Brethren, we are, our names is in the same book, the book of life. And that's why when I'm always dealing with people that are at odds with the church, I'm just trying to, hey, we, I'm trying to establish the things that we have in common. Look, we, we believe this. We believe what you believe. We're committed to it. Let's work this out. Let's figure a way forward. Or if you can't stay here, let's find a way for you to go in a way that honors God and doesn't bring any shame to his name. Or, but we're family. Let's work this out. That's what he's telling these people. Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and crown, that's his attitude towards the church. Is it yours? In this way, stand firm in the Lord, my beloved, twice, my beloved. Tell these women to work it out. Disunity is terrible, gets us off mission, breaks down relationships. The church should be united um, in his commitment to the Lord Jesus and to his command to go into the whole world and make disciples of everybody. Right? That's what we should be committed to. But too often we let our own pride and insecurities and secondary affinities get in the way. And instead of being about the work of the gospel, we're about the work of building our own kingdom. Should not be so. To think, where can I repent? Where am I at odds with people and I'm not talking to them about it? Is there a simple way to bury it and move past it? Is it just by realizing that you're kind of being silly and need to let go of it? Or do you need to talk to them? If you need to talk to them, why have you been taking the Lord's Supper? Either way, work it out. Work it out for the the glory of God, for the sake of the mission. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that it speaks truth and that it uh, doesn't fit um, our worldly, earthly narrative, but it does, it does call us to repentance. Oh, Lord, we are so easily offended. We think so highly of ourselves. We can judge our brothers so easily. Oh, Father, reveal to us the ways that we have been unfair and that we have allowed a, a hedge between us and the, uh, the body. Give us the boldness and strength to say it. And we pray that you would... Uh, 
that there would be grace on the lips of, of everyone involved, that we could be quick to resolve these things so they stay small and never grow big. Father, we pray that we would uh, love the church as a family. We thank you that you've brought us in to something that lasts forever. We ask that you bless the rest of this Sabbath day. In your son's name, amen.